we encounter Jesus cleansing the temple. He's in Jerusalem, and here in John, uh, for some reason, it occurs early in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this event occurs during Holy Week, right after Palm Sunday. But here in John, uh, the event is given not chronologically, but theologically. John wants to drive the point home that even though the temple would be destroyed by the Roman army in 70 AD, Jesus remains. Jesus was the true temple. Jesus is the real temple, representing and embodying the very presence of God. So even though the temple was destroyed, Jesus remains. He is the temple. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, for you are truly our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Christ, amen. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is on a journey. And the first verse in this reading that Becky gave us today has to do with the journey that Jesus is on because there was Passover in Jerusalem and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He didn't just go to Jerusalem, he went up. Literally, he went up. He went up in elevation because he was in Capernaum, a small fishing village that is below sea level, up to Jerusalem, which is above sea level, a journey of 3,000 feet in elevation. So he was going up, 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 rising all the way to the Temple Mount and Mount Zion. But he didn't encounter the lofty heights in the temple courts. No, he encountered the low, muddy merchants doing business in the house of God. And Jesus was quite discouraged. Jerusalem was supposed to be the city of peace, the city of shalom, but instead he encountered something just the opposite. The scene at the temple courts was far from peaceful. It was quite chaotic. People were everywhere. In fact, the historian Josephus estimates that during Passover, people came from far and near, and there were over 2.7 million people in that city of Jerusalem, and over 250,000 animal sacrifices made in the temple. So you can just imagine uh, the, the buying of the sheep and the mooing of the cows and all the commotion from all the people moving and talking. Many people had traveled a great distance to worship God. It was too far of a distance for them to bring their own animals, so they brought money instead. They brought money to pay the temple tax, and they brought money to purchase animal sacrifices, whatever they could afford. If they were wealthy, they purchased oxen or sheep, but if they were poor people, then they could afford a dove, which was less expensive. But a problem existed. Their Roman coins... Their Greek coins had images on them that were considered by the Jews to be idolatrous. And as you know, the commandments forbid idolatry. So right there in the temple, they were exchanging their Roman and Greek coins for acceptable currency. So the money changers and those selling animals and doves, they had to be there in the city, but not in the temple itself. As Dale Bruner describes it, the animal sales are a legitimate happening in illegitimate place. In other words, the selling and the transfer of currency, it had to take place, but just not 
within the temple proper. It cut off communion with God for a certain group of people. It was the place where people wanted to go to worship. They wanted to go there to pray. They wanted to experience the very presence of the Lord their God. All the activity took place in the outer courts of the temple, what's known as the court of the Gentiles. This was a major problem since this was the only part of the temple where Gentiles were permitted to go. So how could Gentiles pray with all these distractions, with, with the mooing of the cows, with the cooing of the doves, with the baa of the sheep, and the clinking of all the coins? So many distractions. Can you relate? Do you find it difficult to pray when there are so many distractions? Isn't it easier to pray when things are quiet, when you're in your prayer closet, so to speak? Jesus wouldn't stand for it, so he responded this way. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple, along with sheep and cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house into a marketplace. The word for marketplace is actually two words here, house and trade. In other words, they were taking the house of the father and turning it into a house of commerce, of buying and selling of goods. Meant to be a sanctuary, it was converted by them into a marketplace or a shopping mall instead. Definitely not the way it was supposed to be. Neil Planninga wrote a book about sin. It was called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he defined sin this way. He called sin a culpable breaking of shalom. In other words, what was supposed to be a temple of God's peace was just the opposite. Shalom was broken like shattered glass. By cleansing the temple, Jesus' actions felt violent, radical, dangerous even. How would he have been perceived? By cleansing the temple, he was perhaps considered a troublemaker. He was from the north in Galilee, a long ways away, and he was in the south in Jerusalem. Perhaps they considered him an outside agitator, someone who didn't belong here. Just who did he think he was? Who gave him the right to perform this stunt? By interrupting business as usual and disrupting the status quo, Jesus felt less like a peacemaker and more like a troublemaker. Troublemaker, is that how people perceived Dr. Martin Luther King back in the day? Decades have passed and now streets are named after MLK and we have a national holiday in July in MLK's honor. But 60 years ago, did people think of him as a peacemaker or more of a troublemaker? Did he stir up trouble like an outside agitator when he marched into Memphis or Birmingham, Alabama or Selma? What did people think of him? Get out of the public square. Go, go back in the pulpit where you belong. Get out of Memphis and back to Atlanta to the Ebenezer Baptist Church. You're not from here. You don't belong here. You can't tell us what to do. Dr. King made everybody uncomfortable by refusing to sit down when human rights were violated. Instead, he stood up against segregation, racism, 
and injustice. And there's a famous quote, perhaps you've heard about it. It says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. King just couldn't stay put in Atlanta with his head in the sand and simply ignore all the problems. He had to do something about it. Organize marches, make speeches, and promote non-violence. He made trouble. Was it good trouble? Good trouble can make people feel unsettled, helping to promote positive change. Honestly, we're probably more comfortable with making trouble in the past than trouble in the present. Could it be that racism and injustice still exist today? Is it just outside there, or is it in here, or in here? Martin Luther King advocated for the integration of the Christian church, but found it discouraging to know that this hour, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, was the most segregated hour in America. Is change within our grasp? Is change even possible? The Reformed Church in America is determined to dismantle racism in the church and church structures. Our denomination is committed to working towards multiracial and multicultural future, free of racism. But not everyone is on the same page. Not everyone is on board. Some are pushing back. In fact, some churches that have left the denomination have fired parting shots. They disagree with all the changes aimed at combating racism and white privilege, and they misrepresent these admirable efforts by using labels like critical race theory. Who knew that promoting positive change would be so difficult? Jesus knew. Jesus knew that promoting positive change would not be easy. However, he wasn't just creating a minor change during the festival or a small disruption during the Jewish Passover. No, he was changing absolutely everything and turning the whole world upside down. By driving out the merchants, he was saying you'd no longer need to pay money to have access to his temple. His grace was sufficient. By driving out the animals, he was previewing the days when animal sacrifices would no longer be necessary. His one-time sacrifice on the cross would be more than sufficient for the salvation of humanity. By moving the marketplace, he was also creating space for non-Jews, for Gentiles to worship God. He paved the way for Gentiles to worship. It was simply intolerable for the temple courts to be a chaotic shopping center when it was meant to be a sanctuary a place to worship God. It needed to be a house, a house of prayer where people could pray to God the Father, not just for the Jews, but for the nations of the world. In explaining the incident, the disciples remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, which says this, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus' zeal for his father's house was obvious that day in the Jerusalem temple. But his passionate actions would also infuriate his rivals, the religious leaders. His disruptive actions called into question the entire religious system that they had grown accustomed to. As a result, Jesus' very life would be consumed. He would be crucified, put to death on a cross, a horrible way to die. But here Jesus knew that 
that death would not be the end of his story. Here, Jesus gave a preview of the resurrection that we celebrate every Easter. When the Jewish leaders demanded of him a sign, Jesus spoke truth to power. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Failing to understand him, they took him literally and said, it is taken, and get this, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to destroy it? You're going to turn rock over stone in just three days? Instead of understanding that he was speaking metaphorically, they thought he was going to tear down the temple structure, as the Romans would do in 70 AD. But Jesus, he said, the temple is my body. The temple he had spoken of was his body and is his body. We no longer need to go to a building like the temple in Jerusalem to experience the presence of God. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, makes the presence of God more uh, available to us, more within our reach. The three days meant the three days in the grave from Good Friday to Sunday sunrise, and Jesus replaced the old temple with the new temple, the temple of his body. He is the very living presence of God. As George Murray informs, the risen Lord is the place, the place where God's glory is revealed, the place where his forgiveness and his renewal are experienced, and the place where fellowship with God is grounded and forever maintained. So the question remains from the sermon title, is Jesus a troublemaker or a peacemaker? By causing good trouble that day, Jesus was pointing forward to a better day when Jews and Gentiles could worship God together, that they could experience Christian unity. The fulfillment of Jesus' prophetic action took place in the early church, wherein these major cities in the Roman Empire, uh, like Philippi and Ephesus, Christians could worship God in someone's house, in a house church. And converts to Christianity could come both from the Jewish synagogue and from the pagan temple. And these people, the Gentiles and Jews, could come together as one body through our one Lord and worship God together. In Ephesus, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church and addressed Jesus as peacemaker. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, that is the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Sometimes we think of the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross as making us right with God, and that's correct. But we're also made right with each other. And the dividing wall, this barrier that created, was that was between the Jews and the Gentiles that was there in the temple that separated the inner courts from the outer courts, the, the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews, that wall was torn down by Jesus and brought those two groups together. In his death and resurrection, Jesus restored peace between Jews and Gentiles, 
the notion of shalom, in other words, wholeness, well-being, and harmony. True peace is certainly a blessing made possible by Jesus, our true peacemaker. People of God, you too are peacemakers through the blood of Christ. He encourages you, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Peacemakers understand that God's love is colorblind. And on Monday, I had an experience at a funeral. I went to a funeral at my parents' church, East Palmyra Christian Reformed Church, just a few miles away from here. And a man had passed away by the name of Paul Stope. And I knew him. He was only 62 years old. And sitting next to me in the pew was a man named Clarence. And I introduced myself to him. And I said, hi, I'm Rick. And he said, hi, I'm Clarence. And we shook hands. And the thing is, this man was African-American, which really stood out to me because the congregation was mostly white. And I asked him, I said, just out of curiosity, I said, how did you know Paul? Fair question, right? And he said to me, Paul used to drive me to church every Sunday. And I was struck by that. This man uh, was an older man, older gentleman, and he had a cane. And I just thought, how kind is it of Paul to, to bring him to church? And now he's passed away. And so I was still curious, so I said, who's going to bring you to church now? And that's kind of an open-ended question, right? I didn't know what answer he would provide, but he said, Peter is. And Peter is the brother of Paul. And he said, if Peter can't make it, then Peter's son will bring me to church. And that really moved me emotionally because not just the racial aspect, but the generosity of it that this family had made provision for Clarence to get to church one way or another. They were going to help him out. It was such a beautiful thing to me. And some people think, well, maybe you will think it's no big deal. But it really moved me emotionally because in that human connection, I had a little taste of what the kingdom of God could look like. May the spirit of Christ work within each one of us to remove any barriers and any dividing walls of hostility that we may have. This may take place individually or within our church community. May we not stand in the way of a mighty movement of God. Instead of further marginalizing those who are already marginalized, may we create pathways of peace. One example of this is Dr. Martin Luther King, and one thing he's known for most is the March on Washington, D.C. back in 1963, his famous I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And King goes on, there's more to it than that. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And that dream captivated a nation. Are we still able to dream today? Are we even capable of dreaming? Jesus not only saved us from the old way of life, but saved us to a new way of life. He loves us too much to leave us unchanged. We might not become integrated overnight, but we need to have our hearts, our hearts open to the possibility. So let's remove any obstacles while also promoting 
diversity. Now in your bulletin this week, and we're doing this through Lent, is a, a prayer card. And the third Sunday of Lent, that's what it is, is the presence prayer. And I love that this is green. Uh, Dottie did that. I can't take credit for it. Dottie in the office put it on green paper. But green is the color of spiritual growth. And, and that's what we want for you. We want you to grow in your faith through prayers like this. Prayers of the presence of God. In God's presence, we acknowledge that God is in the world. In God's world, God is present, replacing chaos with peace, replacing segregation with integration, replacing a sense of superiority with a sense of humility in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord God, creator of all things, I know that you are here. You've always been here, even when I, when we, weren't aware of it when we didn't notice it. We believe that God the Father is here in and through God the Son. He's working to promote peace and build racial harmony. Now the purpose of this presence prayer is to develop a continual openness and awareness that Christ is living within us and among us. As Adelaide Calhoun mentions in her handbook on the disciplines, the presence prayer discovers a new way of being by letting go of your need to manipulate, compete, or control. In fact, this type of prayer replaces competition with cooperation and builds community. She explains that the presence prayer seeks to see others through the eyes of God. Did you hear that? It seeks others through the eyes of God, and it sees the world as God sees it. It sees the other person as someone made in the image of God. It sees the other as someone needing Jesus, just like what we do. It sees the other person as a child of God the Father. The risen Christ is truly our peacemaker. He's the one who enables us to join in the peacemaking. So let's follow in his footsteps. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people together say, Amen. Let's pray.